Eve. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Strong Tea. I'm Vicky. And I'm Katie. And together we are the co-founders, establishers, creators, whirlwind fantastic people who created Strong Tea and its smaller sibling, Quick Brew. Today is a Strong Tea, which means we have invited a truly inspirational guest, And we use this platform to have conversations that some people may consider taboo, some people may consider controversial, but we use it as a way of learning more and getting people to talk more about the things that perhaps we bury our heads in the sand over. And today is no different. We have a wonderful guest today who Katie will introduce you to shortly. But in Strong Tea tradition, let's get right to it. Tom. What are you drinking? Hi, guys. Yeah, I'm drinking uh, Diet Coke, but other cola drinks are available. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, I can't drink tea. Um, I have a weird uh, taste bud um, mutation, which means anything with tannins in, like tea or red wine, tastes like fish to me. So for like my entire childhood until I was in my mid-20s, I could understand why the entire country was obsessed with hot fish water with milk in it. <laughs> now you put it like that, I totally get where you were coming from. Yeah. yeah. Oh, is there anything else like I don't because I don't know what else tannins are in. Is it just yes, in... black tea and red wine are the main ones? Oh, wow. I mean, I don't like red wine anyway. I'm I'm a bit of a I'm a I, Neil's been trying to get me to like red wine for years, and I'm like, nah, don't like it. Nah. <laughs> when you hit forty, you like it. Just you, you think. Yeah. Just think. No, because I like I like coffee now, which I never used to, and everyone said you'll you'll graduate into that. Same with olives. Totally okay <gasps> with olives. And I love a port. I do love port. But mm. but no, red wine, not for me. But so at least you've got a reason not to drink it, but I do feel sad <laughs> about the tea about the fish water, because <laughs> that's that's shocking. Mm. I didn't realise you had tannins in though. Yeah. Every day's a school day. <laughs> And that's the end of this episode. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for joining us and our discussion on fish water. <laughs> More next week. <laughs> what are you drinking, Katie? Uh, nothing fish-based. Um, so I have gone for um, some loose leaf tea because I actually, now I've discovered it, I think it tastes way more vibrant than tea bags. I could be wrong, but that's how I feel. And I'm currently drinking Bird and Blend chocolate digestive tea. Oh, it's a goodie, isn't it? It is a goodie, and it's got it's got a really random selection of stuff in. It's got Sri Lankan black tea, cocoa nibs, cocoa shells, fenugreek, and licorice. I mean, that's a bizarre selection of stuff. Tom, where do you stand on herbal teas? Can you drink herbal teas? Do you like? Them? I don't mind a herbal tea. Yeah, the light ones, the chamomile, are quite like. It's oh quite yeah. A okay. Calming bedtime drink. Yeah, nice. they're all right. Yeah. Good. Although so I always not, get disappointed not... by the fruit ones. Like, it smells amazing. Like, oh, berry tea smells incredible. It's like, mm, tastes like water. Yeah, but I find that the main the mainstream ones are a letdown. But if you get things like Bird and Blend, T2, um, other other sort of more independent ones, they taste so much better. Mm-hmm. And Tom, I'm about to blow your mind. <gasps> get ready. Rhubarb and custard tea. Boom. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> do you remember do you remember the sweeties rhubarb and custard mm. yeah it tastes exactly like that bird and blends rhubarb and custard okay i'm gonna have to try that one yeah 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 but it's <laughs> vicky vicky also likes to 
um, leave it in the cup in her office and use it as a sort of air diffuser because it it scents the air and it's us. It is like sticking nose in a bag of sweets. Amazing. It is not laziness. (laughs) It is practical. Right. On from the fish water and the uh, rhubarb and custard, which sounds like an odd combination, but um, it leads me to uh, introduce our fantastic guest for today, who I don't want to steal too much of his thunder and talk about too much of what he's done, but he is an incredible uh, person, activist, just spreading the word and knowledge and educating people and I'm going to introduce you now to Tom Isaac Hayes who was diagnosed with HIV in 2011 and since then has written about his experiences on UK Positive Lad, founded Beyond Positive magazine and now we will talk shortly in this episode about Positive Plus One which is this new social media network and I'm going to, like I say, I don't want to steal all your thunder, Tom. <laughs> and I want you to tell us your story because you're going to do a much better job than I can. So thank you for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. As we know, this is such an incredibly important topic to be talking about and educating people on. So can you please start by telling us your story? Yes. So um, so my name's Tom. I grew up in the Midlands in the UK. Um and I had a, a fairly unremarkable childhood, you know, going to Church of England schools. I did well. Um, I left school at 18 and moved down to London, where I went into a long-term relationship, started working in IT. And then when I was 24, um, I ended up being made redundant and coming out of that long-term relationship all at the same time. And within six months of that, um, I found myself um, being diagnosed with HIV, unfortunately, because I, in hindsight, I didn't have the, the knowledge and the tools to look after myself. So from then, you know, I've, I've started working as a, a HIV activist and advocate ever since. But yeah, it's been a, a fairly unremarkable life. And then suddenly it's kind of out of unfortunate circumstances. I've sort of changed what I was doing and I'm I'm really sort of enjoying my life and, and helping hopefully to educate others and change minds when we had our initial chat we talked about your sort of upbringing and you you touched on it briefly there with the church of england school um tell us a little bit about the education that you received and you know how that sort of progressed on because you said you know you weren't necessarily set with the tools and the knowledge to take care of yourself so tell us a little bit more about that yeah, so I think a lot of people who are listening to this may have gone to a, a Church of England school or another faith school. And while they may be excellent at teaching you things like math and English, they have a lot more freedom on what they teach you when it comes to PHSE. So uh, sex education, relationship education, things about other faiths, example. Um, so I only ever had one sex education lesson, and that was um, year eight. Um, which is when you're like 13, 14. And they came into the classroom, um, our English teacher. She put a, a VHS, for people who remember those, into the oh, machine. Back in the day, someone who speaks my my language. I know. <laughs> um, oh, it's, it's usually a good lesson when they wheeled the TV into the classroom. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, so just a VHS. It was half an hour long. The first half was a cartoon of some rabbits having sex. <laughs> um and then there's a bit where 
a man and a woman were wearing dressing gowns and they opened the dressing gown and it turned into another cartoon about the bits, you know, genitals and the reproductive system. Um, and then there was a close-up video of uh, a woman's uh, vagina as she gave birth. Um, nice. And then that was, that was it. Um, teacher turned off the, the TV and we didn't really speak any more about it. Wow. The, the girls went off to a separate classroom to talk about like menstruation and period products and stuff like that. But that was it. Um, there was no questions, an answer session. There was nothing about contraception for the boys anyway. There was nothing about STIs or HIV, consent, that sort of stuff. So I wasn't really set up with the practical tools for life. And obviously the first you know, six years were fine because I was in a long-term relationship. And then as far as I was aware, everything was fine. But when you find yourself single as a young gay man on the gay scene in London and you're having lots of sex with new people, I just wasn't equipped to deal with that properly, unfortunately. And obviously that led in fairly short order to, to me being uh, diagnosed with HIV. So talk to us a bit more about that. How, how did you get diagnosed and how did you feel when you were, when you were diagnosed? So unfortunately it was um, one of the first few times I'd been to clinic. Um, Cause obviously it, it happened in a six months period and I ended up, uh, moving back to Birmingham to live near my parents just as because I'd been made redundant and London was expensive so back at Birmingham to be my parents made some new friends and they convinced me that I should be going to a sexual health clinic every few months to get screened if I'm sleeping around and uh, so I did first one was fine um, and then a couple of months later I booked in another routine one and the, the samples were all taken the day before I went on a holiday um, so I went in, gave a samples, thought nothing more of it. And then the next day, embarked on a two-week holiday to Gran Canaria with some friends. Um, and a few days later, we're in Gran Canaria. We're at the villa, hanging around the pool. And my phone starts ringing. And this is before the days of like the free EU roaming, um, which is the good old days again now. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, I was a cheapskate, so I wasn't, I'm not answering my phone. I'm not paying 50p a minute to speak to somebody from the UK. I'm on holiday. <laughs> And they kept ringing and kept ringing. So eventually I picked up the phone and this woman said, hi, am I speaking to Tom? I said, yes. I said, um, this is the clinic. Um, can you come in and see us today? I said, no, I'm in Gran Canaria. Fuck, she said to me down the phone, um, which was lovely. And then she said, when are you back? I said, I've only got here a couple of days. I've got another 10 days to go. She said, shit, don't have sex with anyone and call us when you get back. And then hung up the phone. Wow. So oh. that's kind of how I found out I had HIV because even though I was new to all this, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have done it if you had chlamydia, for example. Mm -mm. Um, and obviously, that's a, a case of a, a very poorly trained um, receptionist or medical secretary, whoever was trying to book me in for an appointment. But yeah, it just obviously that ruins my holiday. I couldn't let it ruin everyone else's holiday, so I put on a brave face and and uh, try to ignore it. But you didn't tell days. anyone? No. I d even I didn't know for sure that that's what it was. So, Oh, my God. So for 10 days, I was um, pretending to smile through a, a Grand Canary holiday. Um, oh. And over the 10 days, I kind of convinced myself bit by bit that it can't be HIV because they couldn't possibly tell somebody they've got HIV in that way. 
maybe it was just chlamydia or gonorrhea or something. Mm. Um, so my dog's climbing on me. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, so when we got back to the UK, um, which was I think midweek, the next morning I got to the clinic even before it opened and was you know waiting outside. I was the first person in. I was the first person seen. Um, I still even remember like the smell of bleach in the clinic for that morning from you know the fresh cleaning. Um, and before my bum had even touched a seat, the the nurse was seeing me. It's like, so your test have come back reactive for HIV, which means positive, basically. Um, and I don't really remember much more than that. I was in there for maybe four or five minutes. I was given a big bag of leaflets and basically shown the door. Um, oh. And I don't remember, again, it's, I don't remember a lot from that period, but then I found myself sat in a park in Birmingham called um some Phillips Square, but everyone calls it Pigeon Parks, it's filled with hundreds of the bloody things. Um <laughs> with this bag of leaflets wondering what on earth had just happened. Um and luckily I knew one other person living with HIV called Paul, who's a good friend of mine. And all I could do was call Paul and tell him what had happened. Um and he said, you know, wait there, I'll come and pick you up in the car and went back to his house and he kind of walked me through what was going to happen next. But yeah, it was really badly handled from start through to finish unfortunately i'd like to point out that i think that's really really uncommon most sexual health professionals are incredibly compassionate and thoughtful mm-hmm. in everything they do it's just i think i just had a a run of bad luck unfortunately of who i was dealing with on this occasion i feel quite angry on your behalf that that's yeah. that's what you had to experience um so that, that's kind of what lit the fire under my belly for what i do now though because yeah. The mm-hmm. bag of leaflets I got, this is 2011, um, were just awful. Like, some of them were really, really simple, like, um, for kids, like, mummy and daddy had a hug and now mummy's got a bug in her tummy or something. And some of them were, like, really complex, talking about genotyping and DNA analysis oh, and stuff. And I'm like, and there's nothing that's kind of in the middle. And because I think at that point in time, there was such an effort to try and not so uh, um, single out the LGBT community mm. every example I had was about straight people contracting HIV and starting families it was like so it was either too simple or too technical and none of them I could identify with so that's kind of what spurred me into becoming an activist and helping to educate people because of the, the crap journey I had mm. so at that point when you were diagnosed and you sat in that clinic and they said it's HIV positive Mm -hmm. what was your knowledge at that point prior to getting those leaflets what did you what went through your mind instantly as soon as they said that truly I had no idea what to expect my again having had no real sex education um I'd only ever heard rumors really around HIV and AIDS as a lot of people seem to better think of it sometimes um and the only not thing I'd ever seen really firsthand was stuff on the news about, you know, comic relief and children in need and what's going on over in um, sub-Saharan Africa. So that was my anchor point for HIV. So I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to die. Uh, can I have sex again ever? You know, will I ever be in a relationship? Who do I have to tell? Right? Do I need to tell people what what's legal issues around this? Blah, 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 blah. So it was never, it wasn't, uh, a, like a good model in my head of what HIV was like in 2011. Um, 
And I didn't really, at that point, have people telling me that I was wrong, apart from until I spoke to my friend Paul. I find it really fascinating how, as you said, the leaflets and so on are kind of very heteronormative in, in their approach. And yet back when HIV and the AIDS pandemic happened, it was very much a segregation tool against the LGBT mm. community. So I find that really mind-blowing that that's happened. That I think that's come off the back, though, because as I was finishing school, Section 28 had just been repealed. Right. So okay. I think a lot of the leaflets probably weren't allowed to mention alternative lifestyles. So in by, again, just another sad fallout of Section 28, that homophobic law, um, sorry, piece of legislation, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's probably another reason why, you know, we weren't given appropriate sex education at that period in time because they weren't allowed to. Mm. It's, um, I mean, Vicky and I talk about this a lot on this show. Normally we're talking about periods, menstruation, menopause, things like that, but we have also discussed it with when it comes to sex education. We don't know, we only know what we were taught um and we're sort of of similar ages so do you know much about what is being taught in schools these days are they covering off things about same-sex relationships more things about sexually transmitted diseases anything like that so there is a basic framework for sexual education in the uk now um that they are supposed to cover these topics doesn't say in what depth or to what detail but they are supposed to cover a lot of the topics around consent uh, lgbtq relationships um stis hov um but again it, it doesn't say to what depth or what quality unfortunately and then you've got free schools and faith schools which don't have to follow that um key uh, key framework either so they can choose still not to do sex education that goes against their beliefs or their charter unfortunately so it's still potluck what you'll get. And then you look at countries like Amsterdam, where sex and relationship education starts at six years old. And it's then it's just about kissing and don't touch people that they don't want to be, or, you know, how to report if someone touches you inappropriately. And they have it every year and it gets a little more detailed, it's age appropriate. And there's a reason, you know, they have the lowest teen pregnancies in Europe because they have the best sex education in Europe. And it just, the complete opposite of what the, you know, some of the conservative sort of mouthpieces say, if you teach children about sex, they're going to have more sex. It's not (laughs) the case. They just have more informed and safer sex. And protection. Uh, Because if they they know, then they know what is right or wrong, what experimenting is, what, you know, you're you're arming them with power not to use it, but to protect themselves as well. Exactly. Yeah. Going back to you, obviously, when you got your diagnosis and your friend Paul um, came to your aid, what? how did you feel you were going to approach this with other people around you? And what, what were other people's reactions? So for the, for the longest time, I didn't tell anyone apart from my friend Paul, mm-hmm. um, just because I was still coming to terms with it. I was still getting my head around the medical side of things. I didn't know how people would react. And sharing your HIV status is a bit like letting a genie out of a bottle. You can't control what that person does with that information. You can only trust that they'll treat it with respect. 
Um, so for a while, I didn't tell anyone other than Paul. And then I started telling my other best friends. And for the most part, the, the reactions were very positive, very supportive. There were a couple of people who kind of disappeared slowly on me, um, but it was, none of them were any great loss. And it's just part of life, isn't it? I think people, friends drift apart anyway, and if that's the kind of information that they can't deal with, then are there any great losses as a friend? Um, one funny moment I had from telling my friend Lee about my HIV status, I, we're in a nightclub in Birmingham, and I've been trying to tell him all evening in various bars, and I couldn't try to work up the courage to tell him. Um, and it was quite late in the night now, so we're in a nightclub called Core, and the music was so loud, and I kept saying it to him. I kept saying, and he couldn't hear me, so I shouted, Lee, I have HIV, just as there's a gap between tracks. <laughs> and like everybody at the bar heard, um, which was both quite traumatic, but also quite freeing in a way I just mm -hmm. told like 20 people I had HIV and I only knew one of them <laughs> so not the way I would have done it but it, it was it kind of was what the turning point in me finding it a lot easier to tell people if I just shouted out in a nightclub to random strangers I'm sure I can find a way to start telling other friends and my family in the biopic of your life by the way when they filmed that all the people in the bar are going to clap and <laughs> yeah, celebrate that moment um how how was your family's reaction um they were very supportive uh my family um were, were great with me coming out as gay um despite me thinking they wouldn't be either very dramatic obviously coming out because everyone thinks it's going to be very dramatic and my parents were like yeah sure that's fine <laughs> <laughs> um you know psyching yourself up it's gonna be awful they're gonna kick me out I'm going to run away from home and it's like, no, that's fine, Tom. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> we know. Yeah, pretty much. So when I shared my HIV status with my family, they were absolutely fine. Um, my mum's uh, worked in healthcare for the years, so she had some medical questions for me and stuff. But yeah, everyone's been really supportive. It's been great. Good. Um, so we talked a little bit about things on the first when we had an initial chat with you and as you know we've had Jonathan um on the show uh recently and we talked a lot about misconceptions now you talked then a, la a little bit about a few friends sort of disappeared and since I've been doing this show with Vicky I've talked to different numerous people about the HIV episodes that we've done and that we've yet to do and your episode today and so few people know about you equals you. And I didn't know about it until I met Jonathan. And I just think this is something which is so, it's such a big thing that, you know, everyone should know about it. There should be huge publicity about it. So I guess it's a very broad question, but what are the misconceptions that are still out there regarding HIV you know, you mentioned AIDS, you know, a lot of people still think they're the same thing. What are you finding in your journey with your own diagnosis, but also the work that you're doing to educate others? Yeah, there's still so many misconceptions around HIV, unfortunately. So obviously, you just mentioned the HIV and AIDS thing, they're very different. HIV is the virus that you can contract. And AIDS is basically what happens if you leave HIV untreated for a very long time. But most people, especially in uh, Western world who have HIV will never develop AIDS. Um, U equals U is incredible. So that's um, 
undetectable equal untransmittable. So when a person like myself is living with HIV and they take their medication properly, which controls the HIV in your body, it means you can't pass HIV on at all to sexual partners, even without a condom. And it means that HIV positive parents can have a HIV negative child. It's, you know, incredible. But I think, like you said, not enough people know about it, unfortunately. It's, it's very life-changing for people living with HIV, and it's life-changing for the partners of people living with HIV. Other misconceptions, I think, still relate a lot around that HIV is a, still a, quote-unquote, gay disease, um, and that HIV can be passed on through casual contact, like kissing or sharing cutlery or a drink. I mean, all these things haven't been true for a long time. I mean, the last one was never true, but... HIV has changed so much in the last 40 plus years. It's completely different than it was back then. People living with HIV will live just as long as any of their friends. They can't pass HIV on when on treatment. They can start families. They can do any job they want. We're just like everybody else, but we take one pill once a day. You mentioned before about sharing your status. What are the everyday challenges that you come across big and small with HIV and you know obviously that can be in connection to the misconceptions that you've just mentioned but you know what are the what are the challenges you face? So for myself the challenges are fairly small and usually overcomable because I'm so open about my HIV status I I won't put up with any BS from people or from organizations but so for example Recently, a friend of mine was asked if she had HIV when she went to a day spa for a facial. You know, that has no, there's no, there's no route of transmission there. There's no need for them to know her HIV status. Um, I've had trouble in the fast fi- past finding uh, tattoo studios um, happy to work on people living with HIV, even though, again, no infection risk um, and they are legally obliged to offer the service to all people. Um, but for a lot of people, the daily challenges are still sharing their status. They're um, dating, sharing their status with somebody they're dating, having sex. Um, if they're not open about their HIV status, they might be hiding their medication at home so people they live with don't know their HIV status. Um, and for other people around the world, obviously there's challenges around accessing care and treatment because it might not be available or free in their country. So. You know, in the grand scheme of things, I have very, very small challenges that I can usually overcome by being gobby. But um, (laughs) mostly, for a lot of people, the challenges are still quite big and take a lot of work, personal and legal, to overcome. I think it's interesting what you said there about the need need to share and the want to share and, you know, how that's changing over time we obviously mentioned Jonathan a short while ago and he talked a lot about obviously he was one of the first people in the UK to be diagnosed with HIV he at the time you know thought it was a terminal diagnosis thought he was going to die the next month throughout the 80s obviously things were a lot different thankfully than they are now um but I suppose do you think and we've talked obviously about this briefly with misconceptions, but do you still think there's a lot of discrimination towards people with HIV? Do you think it's still very stigmatized? Absolutely. HIV is still one of the most stigmatized conditions, unfortunately. Um, you know, you only have to look at surveys done by charities like NAT and THC to see, you know, less than half 
a people survey would be happy dating somebody living with HIV. Um, a lot of people still think you can get HIV from kissing somebody living with HIV. So these misconceptions and fears and uh, lack of knowledge, they feed into the stigma. So by choosing not to date or being open to dating someone living with HIV, you know, you are you're pushing them aside, you're othering them. So you might not think you are, but, you know, you're through your actions, those people are, you know, having less, less opportunities. Um, but also a, a lot of the reason for this is just because the lack of government education. Uh, you talked about uh, Jonathan in the 80s. Did you know the last government HIV campaign ran in 1989? So that's, gosh, 24 years ago now. So some that, of the people listening today won't have been alive when that came out. So that was, that, was that hideous, that hideous, stupid advert with the gravestones. Gravestones and the iceberg. Yeah. Um, AIDS equals death, basically. Um, and at the time, as harsh and as scary as it was, it kind of served its purpose. I mean, I wish it was better, but it did what it needed to do at the time. But there's been no campaign since that to to re-educate the general public you know if you turn on daytime tv right now there'll be an advert for the asthma association for a donkey sanctuary for a cat home for for cancer research uk for british heart foundation when was the last time you saw one for mm. hiv because mm. it hasn't been um and with 110,000 people living with hiv in the uk and around 4,000 people a year still contracting hiv you know it would be money well spent to both help tackle the widespread stigma and to help prevent new infections. In relation to the stigma of what you said before about going into tattoo parlours and some spas, why why are they not allowing people who have HIV? I, I still don't understand. Because you said if, if U equals you, what's the problem i i don't i don't get it is it stigma or is it law or it's stigma and lack of education so by law tattoo parlors should um provide services to people living with hiv we are covered by the equalities act and there's no medical reason why they can't because person living with hiv who knows they has hiv in the uk at least will be on treatment and 98 percent of us are undetectable um the problem is that if the tattooist is refusing to tattoo someone with HIV, that means they don't know, they don't, they don't have the right skills or knowledge around HIV, which makes you wonder how good their other basic universal uh, um, health protection and prevention is in their clinic, yeah. in their tattoo mm-hmm. parlor, sorry. If they don't know the basics around HIV, how is the rest of their infection control? And like with sex, the biggest risk you've got is from somebody who doesn't know their HIV status. So they might be merrily tattooing somebody who's got HIV but doesn't know it. But if I go in and say I have HIV but it's controlled and there's no risk, they won't tattoo you. It's nonsensical. So I think it's stigma and it's just lack of knowledge. And if the tattooist says they won't tattoo you because you've got HIV, like I said, worry about their infection control protocols and probably go somewhere else anyway. Mm. Um, I know we talked briefly on our initial chat and I'm a big fan of bringing this up because I thought it was an incredible piece of television. 
But obviously, uh, Channel 4's It's a Sin with Ollie mm. Alexander that was, I think it was 2020 in lockdown, which seems like an yeah. absolute age ago, it's <laughs> three years ago now. But I mean, my God, what a what a moving, incredibly moving, powerful piece of television, which I mean, the whole well, the whole country was talking about it. It was blew up on Twitter. It was on Facebook. Everyone said, if you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. Oh, my God, it's amazing. Do you think that did a lot for raising awareness or do you think it didn't go far enough in terms of the education? You know, it was it was more about the sort of the story and what happened but did it go far enough to talk about it now right now i think you're right on both counts sir. i think it did an incredible job at telling the stories um because most of those were based on real people as well so i think it did an incredible uh, job of telling real stories about what happened in the 80s and early 90s because we did lose whole communities of of young men to to hiv and aids unfortunately and i think it did a really good job at highlighting this to the general public who probably would never have watched a, a documentary around HIV, for example, because it was uh, appointment to view television. You know, they watched something which was subconsciously educating them, which is incredible. But like you said, my problem is that I really think we could have done with a follow-up episode um, that was like fast forward to 2020, where people living with HIV are just like everyone else, they're taking one pill once a day and that uh, they can't pass on HIV and they can start families because people would have watched that final episode and they would have seen, you know, Jill and the follow the, the surviving members living healthily and happily and that would have just instilled so much more education in the general public, I think. So I think that was a missed opportunity. But on the whole, it was an incredible show and I, I'm so thrilled that those stories were told. Absolutely. I I could watch that again, but I just can't bear the amount that I cried when I watched oh, yeah. this. Oh, my God. Sobbed um, like a little girl. Oh, my God. And what about, who's the Welsh guy in it? Oh, Con. Yeah, yeah, oh, my God. Just like when, I'm not, I can't spoil it. If you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. Anyway. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um. Obviously, you've told us an awful lot about your journey um, and what it's been like for you and the stigma that's still attached to HIV and the misconceptions. So tell us a little bit about the work that you do now. You know, you've got your blog, you've got, uh, I'm assuming you've still got the magazine and you know, now you've got the social network. So tell us a little bit about all of those things and how you're going about supporting the HIV community and educating the world, basically. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been quite a journey since 2011, so what's that, 12 years this year. Um, when I was first diagnosed, I started writing a anonymous blog called UK Positive Lad under the pseudonym Sam, which is my middle name. Um, and I did that for um, a number of months, um, and it picked up quite a bit of traction. I ended up writing um, a column for one of the gay magazines called Attitude. Um, and then in 2013, was it 13? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, someone forced my hand, forcing me to uh, come out publicly about my HIV status. Um, they had um, gone onto Twitter and Facebook and posted my real name and saying, Tom has AIDS is going around infecting people deliberately. Oh. Um, so uh, I had to basically get ahead of that by coming out, as it were, again, uh, publicly on my blog and Twitter and Facebook, which was 
quite a, a traumatic 24, 48 hours. Um, so, but what's always out publicly, I carried on writing my blog, which then morphed into the the magazine because I, you know, my story was starting to get a bit boring, really. I was, I was, I was healthy. I was stable. I was doing, doing my job. So it was giving other people a place to write to their stories. Um, and then I moved on to working for a charity called Saving Lives UK, which is based in Birmingham, who do nationwide free HIV um, postal testing. So you can go onto a website and get a free HIV test to your house. Um, and then more recently, I've just uh, well, been uh, with a new HIV positive uh, social media startup called Positive Plus One. Um, we're building it at the moment and it will be launching at the end of May um, of this year. And it's a, a social media platform for people living with HIV, uh, working in HIV and people affected by HIV. So that could be partners, friends, family members. Um, and the whole idea really is to forge connections and community between people living with HIV and each other so they can provide sort of um, informal peer support and give guidance to each other, connecting people living with HIV with local charities and support organizations if they need things like actual like counseling or help with benefits. Um, but also like just sharing our journeys, like people living with HIV are just like everyone else. We have ups, we have downs, we have weddings, funerals, holidays. And sometimes it doesn't feel right sharing that information on something as big as Instagram or perhaps mm -hmm you're not as out as your with your HIV status as I am. So, you know, you wouldn't feel comfortable putting, you know, today's my 10th anniversary of HIV on your Facebook for your family and employers to see. So this is a, a safe social media network where you can share that because everyone is in the same boat as you. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just a safe and secure environment for people living with HIV to thrive, to share things, to meet one another, and, you know, maybe even find love. I love that. That's such a powerful support structure you've created there. Just mm. that tribe feel, family feel, mm. um, with the commonality of just, you know, being there for each other, sharing and, and helping each other every day. That's a really beautiful thing you've created. So, yeah, that's huge huge congratulations really well, I'm, I'm not the one building it. I'm, I haven't I haven't got those skills, but I, I'm part of <laughs> A wonderful team. So the the concept was created by our founder Christian Mercer Hall, um, and then there's an incredible uh, team of developers, Ryan and Chris and Stuart, um, and yeah, I'm I'm the community and I'm the content manager. So I'm helping build that community and, and get people on the platform and you know creating educational videos and content and stuff like that. Brilliant, That's incredible. What advice would you give? to so you must get this coming you know to your community a lot but young people who have been diagnosed what would be your advice to them based on your journey your experience wow um i think if i was to meet say an 18 year old who just been diagnosed with hiv today um my first thing would be trust the medicine trust the doctors trust the nurses um, it does move very fast to begin with because we now are at a point where as soon as you're diagnosed, we'll run lots of blood tests, um, we'll give you some scans, and then hopefully within the next week or so, you'll be starting treatment. It used to be you waited months to start treatment, but now it's test and treat. 
and it can feel like a lot. It can feel just like a, a roller coaster, um, an overload of information. But it's for your best. They know what they're doing. They do this day in, day out. So trust the medicine. Uh, secondly, it would be tell someone. Um, I told my friend Paul um, in less than ideal circumstances, but just having that that friend to to bounce off, to to moan to, to cry to. Um, was a huge help for me. And every time I told somebody, it got a little easier to live with because the burden was shared, had people asking me how I was. Um, so don't bottle it up inside and, and, and trust your, your doctors, I'd say. Do you... And know that you're going to be okay. Know that you're <laughs> going to be okay. It will be fine. <laughs> um, I kind of want to backtrack a bit because I've thought of a question <laughs> that my brain just completely went out of. All right. um, I guess, you know, you've talked about how you were told about your diagnosis, the, you know, the phone calls. And then when you went to the clinic, you've talked about how you were outed to your sort of friends and sort of bigger circle. Are you or have were you angry at any point? You know, were you angry with the person that you got it from in the first place? And how has this whole journey affected your mental health? Because you talked a lot about the burden can imagine that at times in the early days it was incredibly hard. It yeah, it's been a roller coaster of emotions. I don't, I wasn't angry at the beginning um, because a I didn't know who I contracted it from, and I think most people probably never know who they contracted it from because you know it can take months to show up in tests, and right. you know unless you're only with one person ever in your life and you have a test each time, it's 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 unlikely that you'll you'll know the exact um root of how you got HIV. Um but I was I was disappointed in myself, not angry, but disappointed because I should have done more to learn and protect myself. But then at the same time I'm disappointed, maybe a little angry at the school system that failed me. But I can't blame it entirely on them and I can't blame it entirely on myself, you know. We both had roles to play in that. Um when it came to the person out of me, I was incredibly angry because it was a person that I had been dating briefly. It was a person I trusted with this information and they abused it to get back at me. So, yeah, I was very angry at that. Um, but, you know, you learn quickly, especially when you've got a stigmatized condition like HIV, that negative emotions will very quickly eat you up if you, if you stew on them. There's a lot of self-stigma, self-blame, self-doubt, disappointment, anger towards yourself, anger towards other people. And if you just let that stew it, you know, you'll you'll slowly die from stress and sadness. So you just have to let it go to a certain extent. I, I, when I speak to people living with HIV, especially newly diagnosed people, it's one of the things I, I we often talk about is they're very angry and they're trying to pursue some sort of not revenge but retribution towards a person that passed HIV onto them I'm like even if you know for sure that this person gave you HIV what good is that going to do by you dragging them and yourselves mm. through the courts yeah. or getting angry at them it doesn't take the HIV away from either of you it'll just eat both of you up inside drag your names through the press and it doesn't make anything better you know mistakes happen bad things happen to good people the only thing we can do is to try and move forward and, you know, go to a, a place of happiness and, and self-improvement. 
Have you had a lot of support from the LGBT community or has there been a mixture of reactions? It's a mixed bag when it comes to the LGBTQ community, unfortunately. So I'd say it's majority have been very supportive. You know, you've got incredible organizations like THT, National Age Trust and the LGBT Foundation and LGBT Switchboard who provide support and they're great organizations. And I like to think that most people are kind and compassionate to human beings, even if they don't have the, the knowledge and the skills to to not be stigmatizing intentionally. Um, but there's always a, a small subset in every every population, whether it's LGBT people or straight people or people with red hair. You know, it's and unfortunately in the gay community, because there's been a, a historic drive to always to, to be seen as respectable, to be seen as heteronormative, to be seen as uh, we're just like you. There's a lot of slut shaming. So people will try and other people with HIV or people who don't always use condoms or people who use drugs or people who have multiple sexual partners because they see it as damaging the LGBTQ reputation as being heteronormative and the perfect, you know, Disney family, unfortunately. So that I have had some, some blowback from our community, but for the most part, they've, they've been very supportive. Wow. And I'm glad that you've had the majority of people supporting yeah. you because I imagine not everyone's obviously in agreement with everything anyone does in any circumstance. So it's good that you've the majority of people have. Um, so all of our guests, when they come on the show, we like to offer them a final sip. <laughs> and it's kind of like your thoughts that you want to leave, your kind of legacy of being on the show. What do you want people to know? What Ooh. do you want? What message do you want to share? Because I think, like we said already, this is such an important issue and there's so much more work to do in terms of educating people and um, the floor is yours for as however long God. you want it <laughs> i was gonna say can i tell it down to one thought god oh no you don't um, have to you're not time okay. limited it's fine you crack on final sips okay <laughs> um firstly um if you don't know your hiv status or it's been a while go and get tested it's a single finger prick test now and you can get the results in just a few minutes that's all it takes and if you know your HIV status, if you're negative, you can take steps to stay negative. So that could be condoms or PrEP, for example. And if you're HIV positive, that's also good news because that means you can get on life-saving treatment and become undetectable. Um, secondly, um, I would say that if you just if you are living with HIV, know that you're not alone. There are 38 million of us worldwide. There are 110,000 of us living in the UK. You're not alone. If struggling, reach out and find support, be it, you know, through a friend or a family member or speak to a HIV charity. You can also go to positiveplus1.com um, and sign up for our app, which is launching soon, and that'll be a community for people living with HIV. And I think thirdly, uh, just to everybody, just, just be kind to yourself and be kind to other people. Um, you never know what somebody's going through. You don't know the struggles people have had to get to the point they're at. And they might be having a great day today, but they might be having a really bad day tomorrow. Um, so just be kind, you know, and think about how you express yourself around sensitive issues like HIV um, and how that might impact people. 
Oh, Tom, thank you so much. It's just thank been you. such a pleasure talking with you and just hearing all about your journey. And mm. yeah, just truly inspirational. And we'll put all those links, um, positive plus one and, and you know, your links and so on to the episode bio when we release it. Um, but yeah, thank you ever so much. It's been, it's been wonderful. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been lovely to chat to you both. Oh, and thank you for bringing your dog as well. He's, oh, <laughs> He's been I on my lap the whole time. Gorgeous. I think he should feature on our blog page as well. So yes. we're going to ask yes. you for some pictures. So I think you should send a picture over of you and him because he is He's adorable. Scrummy. Yeah, I will he is do. truly scrummy. <laughs> oh, and listeners, <laughs> if you like what you hear, then please feel free to go to our supporters page on our website and buy us a cuppa. It can not 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 of fish water. Not fish water. No, that that's that's not great. No. But anyway, <laughs> you killed that dead. You killed my flow. I, well, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I just didn't want people to think after the chat that you know it was a cuppa of fish water. So yeah, no, you know, I'd rather not. Yeah, tea, prosecco, prosecco, coffee. Would yeah, prosecco would be nice. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us, and be sure to catch us again next week. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from her. (laughs) Take care, everyone. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.